the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com is the website. Uh, Podcasts are available for downloading there. You can also get podcasts at iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show, Facebook, Twitter, at Prof Dan on Instagram. Just a remarkable development. Is there any instance where what the Democrats accuse President Trump or just Republicans in general of doing where they're not projecting onto someone else the things they've done? The latest becomes the quid pro quo. Remember just a few short months ago? When congressional Democrats were arguing that an alleged quid pro quo between President Trump and the Ukrainian president, even though the Ukrainian president didn't believe there was any quid pro quo, but he believed that a quid pro quo, that is an impeachable offense. That is a high crime and misdemeanor. I wonder if they'll want to revisit that argument after phone conversations between then Vice President Joe Biden and then Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko have been made public. The edited recordings of calls played at a news conference Tuesday in Kiev by a Ukrainian lawmaker, Andrei Dekach, I I believe is his pronunciation, claiming that he has proof showing that Burisma, the Iranian company that paid Hunter Biden, natural gas company that paid Hunter Biden hundreds of thousands of dollars, paid uh, Vice President Joe Biden lobbying fees as well. Also, details of the conversation between Biden and uh, And Poroshenko led a district court judge in Kiev late last month to formally list the fire prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, as the victim of an alleged crime by the former vice president, Joe Biden, according to a translation of the filing uh, that was posted by John Solomon in JustTheNews.com. Uh, listen to the conversations translated Biden and then Ukrainian President Poroshenko. Yesterday, I met meet with the general prosecutor Shokin. Yes. And despite of the fact that we didn't have any corruption charges, we don't have any information about the, he doing something wrong, I especially asked him, no, it was the day before yesterday, I especially asked him, to resign uh, as a, his uh, position as a state person and despite of the fact that he has a support in the power and as a finish of my meeting with him he promised me to give me the statement on, on resignation. And one hour ago, he bring me the written uh, 
uh, statement of his resignation. Great. And this is my second step for keeping my promises. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Firing Shokin and then a subsequent call Joe Biden on what he was willing to do. Introducing President Poroshenko. Hey, Mr. President, Joe Biden, how are you? Very well indeed. All the time when I hear your voice, Good. it's a great pleasure for me. Nice. Well, I'm nice on Air Force Two, and I think we're going to stay connected. We just took off, and I'm hoping this connection will stay open. Assuming that uh, um, uh, there is a new government and a, uh, a new prosecutor general, uh, I am prepared to do a public signing of the commitment for the billion dollars. Again, I'm not suggesting that that's what you want or don't want. I'm just suggesting that that's what we're prepared to do. And again, it wouldn't be finalized until, you know, the IMF pieces are written. Extremely strong motivation. One of the possible candidates was leader of my faction, Lutsenko, who is the public figure. If you think that the political motivated figure would be not very good from your point of view, I recall this proposal, I do not propose, because nobody knows that I want to propose Lutsenko. In this situation, I take uh, all the political motivated figures out from this race. All right, well look, let me, um, uh, let me, uh, when I, you and I finish speaking, let me huddle with my team, talk over what you and I just talked about, I agree with you, there is a sense of urgency here. And so the the sense is that uh, Biden was calling. I mean, you know, Biden made mention of this at this famous Council on Foreign Relations forum where he bragged about, hey, I said, you know, you either uh, fire that prosecutor or you're not getting the billion dollars in loan guarantees. But this is a, provides a little bit more detail and a little bit more context to suggest that it was Biden calling the shots, not just on the termination of Shokin, the prosecutor, but on okaying the new prosecutor and it being contingent per perhaps Poroshenko's volunteering that uh, any uncomfortable investigations by Shokin into Burisma and by extension Hunter Biden would cease. For more on this, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay, who's the publisher of The Hayride and a contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for helping us unpack this. Uh, now we've got uh, more phone calls Boy, between uh, undeclassified Susan Rice emails and leaked phone calls of Joe Biden and uh, Poroshenko. It's been quite the week. So uh, now the, the claim is that these uh, phone calls that were released have been doctored, and so they may actually be misleading in terms of the full context of the conversations between the former vice president and the former Ukrainian president. But uh, they certainly don't, at this point, cast Joe Biden in a particularly favorable light. No, they don't. And and the biggest issue to me, um, and and you actually played this segment in in the first uh, clip that you had, uh, if that is Poroshenko's voice and nobody has said that it's not Poroshenko's voice, then, you know, the big smoking gun here is when Poroshenko tells Biden nobody has anything on Viktor Shokin, right? 
Like Victor Shokin is not a bad guy. He's not corrupt. They don't have any evidence of any wrongdoing on his part. And yet they were firing Victor Shokin for Joe Biden. That's what's said on that tape. And it blows up this narrative that, well, Shokin was a bad guy and he had to go because all of these people said he had to go and it was perfectly proper to get rid of him. Well, I mean, on right, that tape, Poroshenko's right. telling him, this guy's fine, but we're going to get rid of him to get that billion dollars. So, Scott, of course, the, the other side will say, the Biden defenders will say, well, wait a second. Uh, just because Poroshenko says Shokin wasn't corrupt doesn't make it so. Poroshenko himself was corrupt. This is how President Zelensky, the current Ukrainian president, got in, which was on a reform movement, an anti-Poroshenko, anti-corruption movement. Uh, we're all talking about Zelensky finally being the real deal in terms of anti-corruption in Ukraine. So, again, uh, Poroshenko vouching for Shokin doesn't make Shokin uh, uncompromised is the point. You know, those things don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I mean, there, the guy that was the pro-Russian guy uh, was Yanukovych, who this guy, Andrei Durkach, was affiliated with at least at one time. And actually, Zelensky yesterday said that Ukraine is opening up an investigation into Poroshenko based on these tapes, um, which, you know, I kind of one of the things that I wrote in my American Spectator column uh, that's out this morning on this is maybe we should do the same. Um, at Red State, they're calling for a special counsel to be appointed to look into this where Biden is concerned, which I think is a fabulous idea. Sure. Uh, in fact, <laughs> this is a perfect example of something that you bring a special counsel in for, because, you know, I don't think it's appropriate for Bill Barr to investigate it, but, you know, it should be investigated. And if the Democrats don't like that, then maybe they shouldn't have run somebody for the second election cycle in a row who very clearly has some legal problems with, you know, serious issues of, of, monetizing foreign policy and then concurrent to this you have the report that the senate homeland security committee is issuing a subpoena is being issuing subpoenas in the hunter biden investigation well i'm sure they'll want to get their hands on as much documentation and uh, other physical evidence uh, that uh, relates to these phone calls as well Let, let's pick it up there we'll be uh, right back with scott mckay publisher of the hayride and contributor to the american spectator more with him right after this the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Scott McKay, publisher of The Hayride and contributor to The American Spectator about these explosive taped phone calls between ostensibly between former Ukrainian President Poroshenko and former Vice President Joe Biden that have surfaced as a result of uh, the uh, Ukrainian legislator named Andrei 
Durkach and uh, and Scott, as we're talking about this and the Senate Homeland Security Committee is widening their investigation into Hunter Biden. Um, it, it's interesting. This this may be a moment of rehabilitation for one Rudy Giuliani as well, because as you write in your piece in The Spectator, this Andre Durkach is one of the individuals that had Rudy Giuliani whipped into a bit of a frenzy, even if he was not particularly good at articulating it, whipped into a frenzy about what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were doing in Ukraine. Yeah, I I mean, you know, Rudy didn't make this stuff up. Now, you know, you can have an argument about how serious uh, all of this is. And I mean, Biden's camp is calling it a nothing burger, which I, you know, found incredibly amusing. Um, But I mean, this is the stuff that Rudy Giuliani came back with. Uh, you know, back in, I guess, December or January when when, uh, you know, when he started talking about the whole Ukraine thing Um, and on this hour long press conference uh, video that was released two days ago, there's a a guy who's and I don't remember his name, but he's a Ukrainian prosecutor who kind of tied all of this stuff together to Burisma, what's on these tapes. And, you know, if you listen to that segment of it, uh, I, I mean, this guy brings in George Kent. He brings in Marie Ivanovich, who was the ambassador uh, in Kiev. Uh, and and uh, this Karen Greenaway, who was the FBI agent that was that was working out of the embassy and essentially calls all of them dirty as can be on this deal uh, and having facilitated bribery and, and extortion, essentially, of of Poroshenko. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> And it's it's like everything that people said about the Bidens and Ukraine is basically being documented by the Ukrainians and the Biden camp is calling it a nothing burger, which <laughs> it, is really something, it, you know, don't you find the parallel striking to those that were most forcefully articulating sans evidence that uh, a Trump world was a uh, Russian operation. Trump is a Russian asset. The people around him are. Uh, Russian assets, too, or compromised or colluders. And it turned out that in terms of any involvement with uh, foreign actors, including Russians, it was the Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton and the Steele dossier and all that. So uh, it's, it reminds me of this Kim Strassel piece from Wall Street Journal very early on or maybe mi- and early on, I mean, like midpoint in this whole saga. What if everything we understand or what if everything we're told is exactly 180 degrees of what the truth is? And it's sort of the same thing with Ukraine, all this uh, Trump and, and the various offshoots of Russians, conspiracy theories surrounding Trump and Zelensky. And what if everything we were told about Trump and Zelensky was 180 degrees from the truth as the means to provide cover for the real bad actors in this story as well? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think we're coming to the understanding that you can't get better projection at a movie theater than you can get from the Democrat <laughs> Party these days. I mean, the the entire, you know, business of, oh, Trump had a quid pro quo with Zelensky, with Ukraine. It's like, wait a minute. We know where the quid pro We knew the quid pro quo a year ago had to do with Biden. OK, I mean, we knew that that was that was obvious when he was at where was it the council on foreign relations or something where you know he blabbed it you know uh, just out in the open you know that that he got this guy fired and and he was leaving in six hours and all i mean like he bragged about it 
You know, it's like one of these things from a movie where, you know, everybody in the room is like, shut up, shut up, shut up. And he keeps talking, um, you know, and, and, and yet they turn that around and accuse Trump of it when what Trump is, at least in the worst uh, explanation of what Trump was, Trump was trying to get to the bottom of Biden's corruption, and they call that a quid pro quo. Um, <laughs> at a time when Biden, really, most people didn't think was going to be the Democrats' nominee, so it, it, you know, it wasn't even that Trump had any personal advantage to be gained by it. I'm, look, um, I'm looking forward to uh, the tape phone calls that will um, almost certainly be forthcoming between uh, Joe Biden and President Xi of China about the billion dollars Chinese communists funneled into Rosemont Holdings, a uh, Hunter Biden private equity concern. I mean, that, that that's next, right? I mean, all, with all these. It undoubtedly is next. I mean, I, you know, I mean, now I'm, the question I'm joking, is, who of course, would record but, that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm joking, of course. But I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what is uh, what is what is real and what is not in this surreal world of, as you say, projection. Well, I mean, look, if you know, maybe somebody ought to call Andre Durkach and see if, you know, if the Russians had any tapes <laughs> flying <laughs> the on the Chinese yeah, as right. well as the Ukrainians. Maybe they do. They're, apparently they're very good at it. But. Um, you know, and of course, if if that gets done, then you know they'll accuse Trump of of hacking Joe Biden's phone calls, like like uh, the Russians hacked Hillary's emails. And of course, you know that's another piece of of you know to this whole puzzle, which is you know we get this testimony from the guys at CrowdStrike um, that you know just got recently released a, a week or two ago, and they're like, well, you know, we don't really have any evidence that the Russians hacked uh, these emails. Right. Don't really have that. We just accused them of it, but we don't really have any evidence of it. Well, and, you know, and, and, and of course, right. that's swept under the rug. All, all this all this is against the backdrop of the, the, the big news of the week for five seconds now, which was the, the, the latest declassified. Richard Grinnell declassifies the Susan Rice memo that um, indicates that, look, uh, they, there was knowledge by Joe Biden and, and Obama about the Flynn counterintelligence investigation, that he was specifically a focus, that Jim Comey said to the president at uh, this January 2017 meeting, you know, maybe we'll have to withhold some information from the incoming national security advisor, the incoming president, because we're uncomfortable with how many conversations he's had with the Russian ambassador. I mean, the 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 uh, elimination of, or suspension of the peaceful transfer of power, which has been the norm in America since its founding, that's by the boards. Susan Rice and all these people continue to be exposed for having lied about this for the last three years. Joe Biden is obviously an active participant at the, as the vice president. So we got that going on. That's one track. And then a parallel track, we've got this Ukraine thing. And another parallel track, we don't have uh, more details yet about uh, Hunter Biden's forays into into China. And uh, that's not even getting to chapter four in Peter Schweitzer's book about the Bidens. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the one thing about the whole Susan Rice, you know, email to herself, uh, you know, and of course, that's a nothing burger. And they say that that actually exonerates the Obama people. And my question is, why would the White House counsel have advised her to write that email to herself? If everything was above board and nobody had any exposure, mm -hmm. why bother? Mm -hmm. 
That's a really good question. And I, I mean, I've looked around and I have yet to find anybody who could give me a, uh, a suitable answer to that question. He is Scott McKay, publisher of The Hayride, contributor to the American Spectator. Scott, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Coming up next, you're going to hear an interview I did on the morning show that I host uh, in Chicago. John Cash, Chicago Tribune columnist extraordinaire, was my co-host this morning. And we had the opportunity to interview the great Holman Jenkins, the Wall Street Journal columnist. And I thought it was important enough. Holman Jenkins is important enough. He's been just killing it on the issue of COVID-19 from all different angles. So I wanted you to hear this. But just so you understand who my partner is in interviewing Holman Jenkins in the context of it, myself, Chicago Tribune's John Cass, with Wall Street Journal's Holman Jenkins. Rich Lowry, writing in National Review, asks, where does Florida Governor Ron DeSantis go to get his apology? I don't think DeSantis wants an apology, really. If uh, his uh, response to the press corps during uh, his White House visit was any indication, I think he just wants the record set straight in terms of what was said and what the outcomes were. You got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, D.C., everyone up there. We have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption, so they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, i got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. How about that? How about Ron DeSantis? I gave him the mutza for opening the beaches. When I heard he was opening the beaches and we were all going to die and everyone was going to die, you know, just like in Zulu where Jack Hawkins says, (laughs) you're all going to die. Well, yeah, yeah, I gave him a mutza. I can't take it back because once it's the Greeks say, my people, once it's given, it can't come back. But I'm kind of sorry, Ron. No, I, that's okay. I apologize. That's okay. You know, as long as you're not in the narrative spinning business, which is what he's, what he's really decrying. And by the way, it is worth noting, as compared to Andrew Cuomo, who sent uh, nursing home patients who had been infected back to nursing homes, perhaps the most catastrophic decision any governor in the country has made, and yet he's America's governor per the media press coverage, uh, Ron DeSantis took note of what was happening, what we were seeing from other states going all the way back to the nursing home in Seattle at the end of January, and said, particularly with the age of the population and the number of nursing homes and, and senior living communities the in villages, Florida. The all the crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. he said, so he said, well, we need to move to protect the older. And uh, thus, well, what do we see in Florida? 
a uh, lethality rate in nursing homes in nursing homes that have seen infection that is a fraction of all of those other states that he mentioned with New York at the top. And we're talking about this against the backdrop of nursing home deaths comprising the majority of COVID-19 related deaths in the world, a majority in many states, a supermajority in many states, and a plurality in a lot of other states as well. For more on all of this uh, policy confusion and the debate that rages on as the country opens up, we're pleased to be joined by Holman Jenkins, columnist, editorial writer, and member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, his maiden voyage with us. And we're so appreciative to have him. And uh, we're appreciative of John Cass because the only reason he dared to talk to me, John, is because you're here and he's a big fan of yours. Holman Jenkins, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, I would have been happy to speak with you anyway, but I am a, a big John Cass fan. Well, Let me put that on the record. You know, don't you hate that it becomes off, awfully treacly where writers uh, praise each other? But I, given what uh, Dan just said about um, DeSantis and the press and all that, I, I'd like to quote you something, sir. Um, all this has been largely lost on a press incapable of functioning without reducing every public question to a dualism of incompatible stances. Yeah. Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal. Isn't that where we are in our business? It certainly is with respect to the lockdowns. The lockdowns were never dictated by science. They were a purely political response, but the press has to continue to justify them retroactively because the press got on board in such a big way. And that's exactly why you have the Florida situation where they predicted disaster for Florida because that was the model they had bought for no really good scientific reason. When we come back in the last segment of our interview with the Wall Street Journal's Holman Jenkins, uh, we discuss how a small minority can impose a lockdown on everyone. It's a discussion of the socioeconomic divide in America. Uh, and uh, we'll have that part of our interview with Holman Jenkins right after that. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with more of our interview with Holman Jenkins with uh, Chicago Tribune's John Cass joining us. And, and one of the other points you make in that, that same piece that John was referring to is that, look, what you had, and this is somewhat predictable, too, uh, for people who observe how politicians behave, is sort of everybody sounding the alarms and public health professionals sounding the alarms. So that created fear. So then everybody ran to the sound of the applause. And uh, once a few people did than everybody did, and frankly, including President Trump. Yeah, Trump did for a while, too. You know, it really started in Wuhan. The Chinese government really saw a threat there to the party's control, and so they adopted this lockdown strategy that probably didn't make any sense for Wuhan, but that became the model for the world of how you act forcefully against this virus. And so it was adopted everywhere simply because of the applause meter and because that's what the media wanted. It was never dictated by science. The idea that you stop all economic activity in places that had not yet seen the virus or didn't have, uh, you know, overwhelming demand on their hospital systems, that was never part of any pandemic preparedness plan. It went against the plan, but that was the approach everybody adopted. In order to do such a thing, in order to shut down our commerce and 
and have Americans cowering in their homes and and worried about fear and talking about fear constantly. You have to have a a culture that's uh, that would accept such a premise and such talk. I wonder what have you what do you think about Americans and risk? You know, there was a time when Americans we... ride motorcycles, Americans engage in skydiving, Americans volunteer for the SEALs and for the for the uh, uh, Army Rangers. There's two Americas out right. there. There's the, the snowflake America and there's the hardy sort of can-do America. <laughs> They're having a hard time living with each other right now, I'd say. Well, and there's, there's, it seems like there's this socioeconomic divide, too. I mean, Michael Lind from University of Texas uh, says the divide in America is really the divide between those who have a college degree and those who don't, essentially. And we see that sort of bearing out in the polling. Scott Rasmussen, only 34 percent of Americans trust government officials more than everyday Americans. Just a third. But guess who comprises that third? By a 64 to 32 percent margin, those upper income voters still think the lockdowns have done more good than harm. So it's a it's a fraction of the overall population. But that fraction is dominated by people who dominate the media and the cultural institutions that drive public policy choices and to some extent shape public opinion or at least have the ability to quiet uh, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, but in the long run, all they're doing is destroying the credibility of the institutions that we use to to send messages out to the public. You look at how completely the media is in disrepute with a large part of America. You can't go on being at odds with reality as long as some of our media institutions and political institutions are without basically just losing the backing of the American people. That's what I'm worried about. Right. And, and, and also, too, you know, it's one of those things where the, the media believes they're on the side of right. And a lot of politicians do, too. They, they have this sort of like Sir Galahad theory of life, you know, because I'm the most pure of heart. Everything I do is above reproach. And so they come across as omniscient or at least as knowing things they don't know, including the experts that everybody references, uh, rely on the science, rely on the professionals, rely on the experts. And then the story out yesterday that after all the talk for six weeks about uh, uh, COVID transmission through contaminated surfaces, we find out from the CDC that, no, we were wrong. The uh, transmission via COVID uh, on surfaces is not very likely. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is the problem of, a, of not having enough knowledge to begin with. We were in a situation of radical uncertainty. But the media hates that, so they invent answers to questions that they don't have answers to, and that's the problem. And then they get wedded to them. They have to defend them for the sake of their own self-image. And so, you know, the easier take, it's like unraveling the Russia uh, collusion uh, uh. conspiracy. It's taken an unbelievable amount of time and legwork, legwork to, you know, take away this belief that the media promoted, and still a lot of them cling to it. Because once they get invested, they can't let go. No, oh. matter, no matter how many Susan Rice emails are declassified. What's been interesting the last few days, you started it a while ago with what the FBI cover-up is covering up, and then uh, your colleague James Freeman wrote a great piece about the media writer at the New York Times, which I thought was devastating and perfect. And then from the left, you have Glenn Greenwald and uh, Matt Taibbi also weighing in. If you're the editor of the Washington Post or the New York Times, and I know Dean Baquet, I work. I worked with him when we were chasing aldermen together. Don't you want to walk back this cat before it all comes out? Don't you want to have your own, say, another crack team of journalists trying to figure out how your own people and those of the Post were manipulated by 
deep state actors or Kamalist actors, if you forgive me for using my own term? You ask a I great mean, question. You know, I've wrestled with that myself, and I, all I can come down to is that we are a media now that is increasingly reliant on reader subscriptions. We don't have that big insulating advertising spend to protect us. And so, I mean, Dean Baquet is terrified. He comes across in his public statements of social media and people attacking the New York Times if it diverges from the narrative, even for a moment. And I think that drives a lot of this. If you're depending on subscribers to pay your bills, it's very hard to disappoint them by delivering the story they don't want. Well, but it's just sort of a remarkable position to take because it seems to me that you could make a very uh, persuasive argument, perhaps a more persuasive argument, by saying um, you may not like Trump and there's all sorts of good reasons to not like him, to disagree with him, to not vote for him. But that doesn't mean that he's a Russian agent. I mean, that doesn't sound like an outlandish position to take, does it? No, it doesn't. The whole idea that you take a position on a factual matter based on whether you like Trump or not, that's not good journalism. What we mean by objectivity in journalism is exactly that. You judge facts by the factual information, not by whether you like or dislike or are in favor or opposed to the person stating the fact. And uh, just against the backdrop of uh, the unemployment claims number today of uh, 2.4 million, so now mm-hmm. we're north of 38 million over the last two months. Um, what, one of the things that uh, policymakers also not omniscient about uh, how this all unravels. There is a lot of pain and suffering yet to come, and there should be some expectation control in that direction as well. It seems to me. Yeah, no, that really is the big experiment. We understand the virus better than we understand the consequences we have loosed in our economy by with these indiscriminate lockdowns. Nothing like this has ever happened before, and we are going to be paying for it in ways we can't yet foresee, uh, probably for decades to come, especially in the career prospects and the earning prospects of younger people. It's really going to be bad. We are going to regret this so much, I am certain. He is Holman Jenkins. He's columnist, editorial writer, and member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. His uh, column is must read. Holman Jenkins, real pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. It was good to be with you guys. Thank you, Holman. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Fox News reporting yesterday. More than 600 doctors signed on to a letter sent to President Trump pushing him to end the national shutdown aimed at slowing the spread of the coronavirus, suggesting that orders keeping businesses closed and kids home from school could be a, quote, mass casualty incident, unquote, with exponentially growing health consequences. They worry about uh, the financial instability that could lead to poverty and financial uncertainty, which is closely linked to poor health. This just in a weak economy means a weak health care system. People in poor financial condition tend to be in poorer health than those in more stable economic condition. Relearning things we know. But, hey, this is stuff needs to be said, and it needs to come from the medical profession. So I appreciate the 600 doctors who are saying it. We are alarmed at what appears to be the lack of consideration for the future health of our patients. The downstream health effects are being massively underestimated and underreported. This is an order of magnitude era. Yes, they continue to say the millions of casualties of a continued shutdown will be hiding in plain sight but they will be called alcoholism, homelessness, suicide, heart attack, stroke, or kidney failure. 
In youths, it will be called financial instability, unemployment, despair, drug addiction, unplanned pregnancies, poverty, and abuse. Because the harm is diffuse, there are those who hold that it does not exist. We, the undersigned, know otherwise. And we've gone over the data on this. We did yesterday uh, a couple of times. This is uh, you know, axiomatic. This is a truism. We know this with respect to economic downturns that have nothing to do with a viral outbreak. Of course we know this. And I know what people can say, well, you could have uh, 600 doctors sign a letter saying the opposite, too. You know, 600 doc- doctors in a country as big as America with all the medical professionals, that's nothing. True to an extent, but the point is this. It's not that you couldn't have just as many doctors uh, sign a letter, and this is not a competition to reach a magic number. But the way the D.C. press corps is reporting this as if on one side, the lockdown and bust politicians, the governor Wolves, a wolf of Pennsylvania, Pritzker of Illinois, Whitmer of Michigan, even as they're starting to relax a little bit as we near June, just a little bit. The point is to say the D.C. press corps has been running interference for them while they have been unfairly denigrating the governors like Abbott and Kemp and DeSantis, manufacturing stories about them and about what's happening in their states with their more aggressive reopening, which we'll get to in a bit. So on the one hand, you have these wonderful politicians. Andrew Cuomo is a hero. The point is to say it's never been and not now is it all the medical professionals on one side and a bunch of mouth breathing rubes, credulous boomer rubes, deplorables on the other side. That's always been false. And if you would have listened to some of the more outspoken medical professionals on the side of measure and thoughtfulness and identification of who the vulnerable populations are before you run headlong into a darkness you don't understand, then we wouldn't be at this point. A more balanced approach would have been a less loss of life, ostensibly, certainly the secondary effects of lost life based on the draconian lockdowns and obviously associated with this topic of conversation, less economic devastation, which we're just starting to get a handle on 38 million plus first time unemployment filers into it in just the past two months. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show and Facebook and Twitter and the like, at least until I'm banned along with every other conservative. Uh, I want to go back to the interview we did uh, on last night's show with Dr. Scott Atlas, uh, former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, uh, against the question about kids going back to school. And you have even sensible policy experts, really, uh, social policy experts like uh, James Capretta at the American Enterprise Institute, who are resistant to weigh in on whether it's okay for kids to go back to school at this juncture with what we know about COVID-19. And uh, part of it is because something happens like uh, some children get uh, some react, have a reaction to COVID-19 that uh, is somewhat similar to Kawasaki disease, rashes and the like. And uh, it freaks everybody out. And they suggest, well, maybe, you know, there's things that we don't know about how it impacts children. And this could be a lot worse than we anticipated. And Uh, This affected just a small group of children, but it could be indicative of a larger group of children that are potentially vulnerable 
that have a similar profile. So we just need to put the uh, press the, the pause button here again before we make any decisions. Uh, we need some further investigation. Well, here's what uh, Dr. Scott Atlas had to say about that line of thinking. This complication that resembles Kawasaki disease is far, far rarer than the already extremely rare Kawasaki disease. Okay, I mean, this is insanity to talk about this. In New York City, there are 15,700 and some deaths the last I looked two days ago at their, their own website. Eight million people under 18, and only one was in a child without a significant underlying disease. That means 0.006%, not 6%, not 0.6, not 0.006% in one child. This is insane what's being said about Kawasaki disease. It is completely irrational. And simply, it's a manifestation of the fear that any normal person even has ever heard of the word Kawasaki disease. This is just completely <laughs> a world okay. that... I don't want to laugh, you know, we, but we I are mean, listening yeah. to. Yeah, uh, we are uh, listening to people who think they can do a Google search on the Internet and they're an expert. We are living in uh, Kafka's The Trial, is what Dr. Atlas went on to say. I'm afraid so in so many respects. For more on this topic and a dose of common sense realism, which is what uh, uh, our next guest has written about somewhat extensively, he is Robert Curry, serves on the board of directors of the Claremont Institutes, the author of Common Sense Nation, Unlocking the Forgotten Power of the American Idea. We better unlock that quickly. Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding the Truth in a Post-Truth World. Uh, Robert Curry, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, um, common sense realism. It may not be as in short a supply as uh, we might uh, be led to believe, you know, when you hear the, the frustrations of a Dr. Scott Atlas with some of the discussion going on. But that discussion is going on in very rarefied air, and uh, it runs counter to the opinions from some recent polling of, you know, the vast unwashed masses, as the uh, elites would describe them who uh, do practice common-sense realism as the means to get through each day. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, I think we, we know this guy, Fauci, from before. Um, it's not what I wrote about in my article, but I should tell you, I guess, that when I happened to be watching television when, when the president came on and, and at the beginning Fauci appeared for the first time, and I turned to my wife and I said, Oh goodness, we're in trouble because <laughs> Fauci was Fauci set off a, an earlier panic. Now you're just a young fellow, Dan. I don't know if you remember this or not, but for a while in the '80s, the official view was that you and I were at risk of getting AIDS. Right. And it was official. I mean, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey had pronounced on this, so it was, um, you know, it set, that set off a, a real panic, especially among the ladies, that this was really happening. Now we know it isn't true now. Today we know that's not true, and we don't have that worry. But there was a time when it was quite widespread, and the man behind that panic was the same Fauci that got this one going. You know, it, it, and and the same um, sort of thinking too, because it's really it's it's a it's an individual yeah. issue when individuals are in positions of authority and conferred even greater authority and power. But it's a certain right. mode of thinking, and so you've heard it from Dr. Fauci. I, I just I can't get this out of my head, Dr. Fauci. There's no such thing as an overreaction early on. Now you have former CDC director, Dr. Uh, Peter Frieden, who said there's no such thing as being an al being alarmist. And he said that like this week. And then Melinda Gates saying COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. The, the, the sort of, you know, the sort of sort of, you know, kind of I'm I'm the central planner. I'm the vanguard. 
Uh, and uh, so we're going to err on the side of uh, of they would say safety, uh, public health. But I, but it's it's a one size fits all. It's whatever I can conceive. That's what we should do. And you are going to do it. Yeah, and you are going that's to do really it. That's really what that's really what it comes down. That's what I wrote about in the article on, on Fauciism. I mean, um, um, you know, the American way is is pretty well exemplified in a in a trial. You know, you have the the expert witness, forensic scientist for the defense, and the expert witness, the forensic scientist for the uh, for the uh, prosecution, and and the and the um, and the jury listens to these two scientific presentations and makes a a common sense beyond a reasonable doubt judgment about the truth. This is the way we are are um, you know classically thought. For me, I trace this this crazy idea of handing it handing our public policy over to a bunch of experts back to that terrible thing the Warren Commission. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered, so there's not going to be a trial. So what happened was a, a blue ribbon commission you know, looked into it and came out with a with a report. Whether or not that they got it right, they didn't do it right. The right way would have been would have been to carry out a trial in which both sides were heard and um as if Harvey um, was on trial for for the public and we need to have this this A team B team approach that the Pentagon uses and that we use in the courts to deal with these these public health issues, and and then the Congress, hopefully, and certainly the public, will make a common sense decision about where on the on the um, you know on the spectrum of this is a flu. We do nothing to uh, you know the uh, you know the, the you know there's no overreaction. Let's lock the country down. Somewhere in there. Is a is a more common sense approach, and it's much closer, in my opinion, to the sort of thing that Scott Atlas has to say. You you uh, mentioned in your piece, uh, you know, you sort of trace this back to uh, Wilsonian progressivism and his uh, adherence to uh, the German philosopher Hegel, and and it seems to me, I you know, that this may this may be sort of uh, all of a certain kind, a certain category, but. It's very uh, reminiscent of what Antonio Gramsci used to uh, d- did write about, where he talked about sort of the cultural hegemony of a certain class that that drives the response, right? The the cultural what we call the cultural elites, but it's really cultural hegemony, and this is how a small group of people in the right positions can impose its will on the uh, the larger population, even in spite of general opposition. Oh, that's so brilliant what you just said. And, and, you know, I mentioned in the article that really our federal government, our state government, and your local government and mine is populated by people who believe in this progressive idea that people can't decide for themselves, that they aren't capable of self-government, and we need to regulate everything. So, so that, that number is, uh, is, is overrepresented in our, in, our, in our elected officials and almost to a man and woman in our um, uh, non-elected officials in government. I mean, Fauci's a big enthusiast um, for um, Hillary Clinton. No surprise there. But but so are just about everyone else in the federal government, the state government employees and the local government employees. I've met some in my town. I don't know about you. Yeah. But they are all they're all have the idea that you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the expert, and you can shut up. Hey. You know, we spent – our neighborhood spent five years fighting our, um, um, you know, our town council you know, because of an improvement they wanted to do that would have wrecked our neighborhood. And we really had a heck of a fight on our hands. And that's really my local government, and that's Fauci, 
and that may be the you know the way it is in your state too. Well, it's it, it, see the question used to be sort of are you more fearful of, of the political ruling class or or the technocracy in charge? And and I'm not so sure I can distinguish the two anymore. <laughs> That's a brilliant observation, Dan. Golly, I think you got it. Okay. Well, I I think it's from reading your book, comments your books about common sense. I I stop trying to be too complicated a thinker. It's actually uh, it's actually somewhat linear when you just give it a give it a a, a, a cursory review. Even it seems to come into uh, to, to to clarity quite readily. He is Robert. Isn't that so? Um, it, I, Isn't that so? it really is. I don't. There's, there's something to this common sense business. I don't know. Maybe we should try it. Uh, <laughs> how bad could it be compared to what we have now? Uh, Robert, we we, common sense couldn't screw it up as badly as what we've got now. Seriously. Robert Curry serves on the board of directors of the Claremont Institute. the author of Common Sense Nation, Unlocking the Forgotten Power of the American Idea and Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. Robert, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show there is uh, some meeting out of punishment of china that's ongoing and there's probably a lot more to come but it's difficult to take seriously this uh, investigation uh, by the WHO into the China response, isn't it? Uh, it's difficult to say that uh, China will be properly chastened by uh, removing some companies from the, uh, NS- the New York Stock Exchange and so forth. Is there anything, frankly, that can reach the Chinese communists in terms of uh, modifying their conduct, both uh, with respect to covering up what they did so that we get some truth uh, in addition to their behavior prospectively. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Josh Phillip again, senior investigative reporter of the, for the Epoch Times and host of the China Report. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's a real pleasure being here. Thank you. Uh, so uh, what can we look forward to from the uh, WHO's deep dive on the uh, China response to the COVID-19 outbreak? To be honest, it's not very likely, at least in my analysis, we're going to get a whole lot out of the WHO in the short term. But on that note, the Trump administration has given them 30 days to to show substantial changes in terms of their approach and to to demonstrate their independence from the Chinese Communist Party. So, yeah, within 30 days. Otherwise, the freeze on U.S. funding to it is going to be permanent. So that's that is is that enough, though, is uh, pulling our uh, half a billion dollars. Is that enough to uh, change how the WHO operates in a substantive way, not just, you know, not just sort of papering over it, but truly a culture change there? To be honest, I don't think it's going to happen. I I think it I mean, trying to be nice to it, but, you know, just in my analysis, I really don't think it's going to change. The Epoch Times actually is putting out an investigation uh, we've looked into the different organizations that basically make up the WHO, and just about uh, there's a lot of them, a large number of them that have leadership tied to the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's not just Tedros being biased; it's many organizations with, sorry, many organizations within the WHO that have very similar ties to China. And so it's 
if they do make a change, I don't think it's going to be a reliable change. So it would have to be a very fundamental remaking of it. Because what we're looking at the wrong pot of money, right? We're looking at the budget for the WHO when we should be looking at where the Chinese communist money flows like to Ethiopia and Dr. Tedros and you're saying and uh, throughout the world as well. Exactly. In other words, it's not just a surface issue of a bias. It is a fundamental issue with the very makeup of the, of the organization. You would have to substantially uh, remake it in order to in order to remove that bias. And with respect to that uh, uh, paradigm, which is still in operation in some to, to some extent, with the Phase One trade deal that was uh, pushed through by President Trump and President Xi. You know, I mean, where does that stand, and what does trade with China look like going forward from the Chinese perspective? given uh, the uh, hammering they're taking from the West? Well, trade trade for the Chinese regime is warfare. They're regarding this as the battle of industry. Who's going, who's going to control the supply chains? Who's going to control the natural resources? Who's going to control the means of production, right? Factories and things like that. Uh, really, the Chinese regime had taken up most of that. Um, you know, we, we think about these things basically in the U.S. We think about in the U.S. For China, they're thinking about the whole world. They're taking over, for example, uh, GDP products in most of Latin America, most of Africa. Uh, they who controls the GDP products of Australia, the iron mines and the, you know, the farmlands. It's in Australia. Sorry, it's uh, China. And so they they've gone at it pretty hard. We we can we can deal with them when it comes to say, individual factories and pulling out, but there is the fundamental issue of who controls the natural resources, who controls the supply chains. Um, Some countries are pulling out, for example, both Japan and India right now are actually paying companies to leave China. And so there is a big shift, not just on the U.S. side, but around the world, to kind of decouple with the the Chinese regime. it's unclear whether the Chinese regime is going to be able to convince them to stay. And so we'll have to see. But for, for, for China, yes, this is this is an issue of survival for them. Let's put it that way. Uh, with respect to Huawei and Chinese tech companies having involvement in building 5G networks in, in the U.K. or the U.S.? It is. I, I mean, unfortunately, the whole issue of 5G has been put into the realm of conspiracy, mainly because you know, it's conspiracies about whether it caused the virus. But... In my opinion, 5G is a concern not because of that, but because, yeah, the Chinese regime controlling critical infrastructure that can work on, you know, um, you know electromagnetic spectrum generation technologies. They, they've done experiments on weaponizing things like that. Um, you know, for example, there was the issue just recently of using sonic weapons on U.S. diplomats. Uh, they, In fact, if you read the Assassin's Mace, oh, yeah, that, that was in Cuba, right? But if you read the Assassin's Mace Doctrine, they, they actually talk about experiments, for example, on animals where they've tested electromagnetic weapons, for example, seeing how it affects the eyes and skin of the animals. And so they, they have, in fact, weaponized technologies like this. Now, you could argue, yeah, they haven't. 5G itself may be stable, but who's to say they're going to stay within the 5G spectrum if they have technologies that could generate that? And that's one of the big concerns around this. Going back to... Um... Uh, the issue of supply chains and uh, not just uh, U.S. companies, but uh, companies of, that uh, originate in other countries being incentivized to remove their presence in China, uh, if not go back to their 
their home country than, you know, somewhere else in Southeast Asia or uh, somewhere else. Um, what is it that Ch- I mean, and, and this is against the backdrop of China dominating really the world steel market, uh, dominating minerals, dominating uh, pharmaceuticals to some extent, to some extent. Um, what is it that China most fears the West will do uh, in terms of uh, 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 hampering their aspirations for global dominance? Well, to be honest, the picture of what they had already done was so far along that I don't think they really feared anything until very recently. Because really, to to overturn what they've already done, I mean, they control something like 90% of some of our pharmaceuticals. Uh, they control blood thinners, for example. They control um, you know, the, a lot, even the illegal drug trade, things like fentanyl and the ingredients and precursor chemicals for the drug cartels. Uh, I mean, they, they control most of it. They, and again, it's not just a U.S. thing. You go to Africa, you go to Latin America, you can go to Australia. They control a lot of the main GDP products. Um, now, ending that would mean you'd have to basically pull out all these different factories from China, not just from the U.S., but all around the entire world. And as far as they were concerned, that was a scenario that just never take place. Um, what is happening right now, though, where, where countries, including again Japan and India, even paying other com- other companies to move their factories out of China, we're now seeing that take place. What is happening right now is what they fear most, actually. He is Josh Phillips, senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times, host of the China Report. Always insightful. Thanks so much for joining us again, Josh. Appreciate it. Back to the Dan Prof show uh, yesterday uh, at the uh, media availability President Trump had. Uh, he had um, uh, much to say about uh, the response, queried about it, of course. Uh, but he was also asked about his uh, use of hydroxychloroquine. And he said, uh, still using it. He's got about two days left in the current regimen, he said. And uh, it was left there. At a press briefing later, White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany uh, continued, uh, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> her very strong start against the D.C. press corps. She goes into those pressers not freewheeling it. She is well prepared. And, boy, they play right into her hands as they did on the matter of hydroxychloroquine. Listen to this exchange. One thing I want to note with regard to hydroxychloroquine, because I think it's very important uh, that we're as accurate as we can be with our reporting on this. Hydroxychloroquine has been a drug that has been in use for 65 years um, for lupus, arthritis, and malaria. It has a very good safety profile, but um, as with any drug and as with any prescription, it should be given by a doctor to a patient in that context, so no one should be taking this without a prescription from their doctor. But that being said, I've seen a lot of apoplectic coverage 
shortage of hydroxychloroquine. You had Jimmy Kimmel saying the president's, quote, trying to kill himself by taking it. You had Joe Scarborough saying, quote, this will kill you. Neil Cavuto saying, what have you got to lose? Um, one thing you have to lose are, are lives. Um, and you had Chris Cuomo saying the president knows that hydroxychloroquine is not su supported by science. He knows it has been flagging, flagged by his own people, and he's using it. Um, well, Cuomo mocked the president for this. Um, and interestingly, I found this out just before coming here, um, hydroxychloroquine, of course, is an FDA-approved medication with a long-proven track record for safety. And it turns out um, that Chris Cuomo took a, a less safe version um, of it called Quinine, which the FDA removed from the market in 2006 because of its serious side effects including death. So really interesting to have that criticism of the president. And on that note to Chris Cuomo, I'd like to redirect him to his brother, the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, um, who has several on-the-record statements about hydroxychloroquine, saying, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful about the drug, and that's why we'll try it here in New York as soon as we get it. There has been anecdotal evidence that it's promising. That's why we're going ahead. And I have about eight other quotes from Governor Cuomo, should any of you have interest in that. Uh, and I bet they don't. Uh, here's the thing. It's just remarkable. The uh, Chris Cuomo thing is priceless. So uh, Trump is uh, using a drug that has FDA approval and Cuomo isn't. Well, Cuomo ridicules Trump for using an FDA approved drug. And of course, you had uh, the VA secretary testifying committee earlier this week that on any given day, uh, his uh, uh, agency, the, the VAs across the country, will use 42,000 doses of hydroxychloroquine on any given day. Uh, even though I, I understand with respect to COVID-19, that, that is not a, it's an emergency use authorization for COVID-19. And so doctors in consultation with their patients, just as what, just as Kaylee McEnany had said, why does this have to be controversial? Why does it have to be trying to disprove or just dismiss, really, it's not disprove anything, dismiss the notion of HCQ as potentially an effective treatment in potentially some circumstances, even if it's just modest improvement, just as remdesivir for emergency use authorization, at least according to the clinical trials, you know, has the promise of perhaps modest improvement. It's not a game changer. I'm not saying HCQ is a game changer either. I'm not saying anything. I'm saying uh, it's the FDA has weighed in on it. We know what its uh, previously approved uses were, and we know what its emergency use is. Let the clinical trials go forward and let's see what happens. It's remarkable. Uh, David Harsani, a friend of the show, writing about this uh, in National Review. Trump aid is making it harder to study hydroxychloroquine. The media hyperventilation is preventing the advance of science. Uh, NPR recently uh, did an interview with Dr. John Giles, a rheumatologist at Columbia University, who says the partisan fight over hydroxychloroquine has made it virtually impossible for him to find people to test the effectiveness of the drug against coronavirus. Quote, we're hearing from uh, now from some participants that the study and the drug feel too political and they just don't want to participate at all, said Dr. Christine Johnson at the University of Washington. Giles also pointed out that HCQ is a very, very safe drug, and yet he can't get people to participate in the study because, quote, pretty much everyone believes it is, quote, dangerous to your heart, unquote. Um, and uh, this is what the, the media has written about this unproven drug that regularly cause heart arrhythmias. That's that's not the basis of any peer reviewed science on the topic. Yes, there's some indications 
But this is why there, you have scientists trying to do clinical trials and the media just wants to uh, circumvent that, r- you know, run HCQ out of business just to make a point against President Trump. You know how sick that is? This is Dan Proff. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Who would have thought that uh, barbers and hairstylists would be the Nathan Hales of the lockdown? You have Carl Mankey, the 77-year-old barber in uh, Owasso, Michigan, who opened his shop in violation of Michigan's stay-at-home order uh, and uh, uh, saying, you know, look, i got to open my shop. If I'm going to have a shop to open up, I need to get back to work and start cutting hair and making money. 77 years old. He's given a ticket for violating the order on May 6th. He was charged with a misdemeanor. He uh, kept his shop open. On May 13th, he was notified by the Michigan Department of Licensing that he his uh, barber's license had been suspended. He reportedly closed the shop at, at that time. But uh, then he <laughs> he uh, attended a, a rally outside the Michigan State Capitol building in Lansing, where uh, as part of the uh, theater of it, uh, he and some other stylists were cutting hair during their demonstration. Uh, Carl Mankey uh, continuing the fight, saying this. I'm going to continue on. I'm not going to stand down. I'm 77 years old. I mean, what are they going to give me? Life? I got one foot grave and the other on a banana peel. I could care less. <laughs> oh, you got to love it to, to some extent. Although, you know, be careful what you uh, suggest they, they can or can't do, Carl, especially in the land of uh, the East, La- the uh, Ava Peron of East Lansing. And, and so is the case in Pennsylvania, the, the, the most draconian lockdown state still in effective lockdown, Illinois, my home state, Pennsylvania under Governor Wolf and uh, Michigan, although there's a reopening beginning tomorrow in northern Michigan under the uh, Ava Prone of East Lansing, as I mentioned. So let's go to to Pennsylvania and another hair care professional. And this involves uh, a high profile client, Big Ben Roethlisberger, the Steelers quarterback said he wouldn't cut his hair or shave until he was able to throw a legit NFL pass to one of his teammates. That occurred over the weekend. This uh, brought to us by uh, Jim Freeman over at the uh, Wall Street Journal, by the way, in his Best of the Web column, which is always good. The Steelers released a video on Monday showing Roethlisberger flinging a ball to his teammates. Near the conclusion of the video, Roethlisberger is shown in a stylist chair with his hair cut and someone using scissors to touch up his neatly trimmed beard, as uh, Joe Reuter reports in the Pittsburgh Tribune. ESPN reported uh, Roethlisberger got his makeover at Norman's Cotton Edge Barbershop in Sewickley, and a person answering the phone at the salon confirmed the quarterback recently visited. That, the, the notice of Ben Roethlisberger's haircut grabbed the attention of Governor Tom Wolfe, who, during his daily press briefing, and aren't these daily press briefings from these governors becoming a bit tiresome, too, for all the criticism of the daily a national briefing from Trump's, those daily briefings of Trump's, which have subsided. My general, uh, my concern is just a general concern, said Governor Wolf. Anybody who puts himself or herself in a harm's way is something that I think we have to try and avoid. We have to try and avoid life, apparently. 
He continued, when you have, when you go to something like a barber shop and you're not protected, I don't care who you are, the chances of that virus actually wreaking havoc on your life increases. Yeah, it's sort of the dumb and dumber odds. Uh, what are you saying? The chances are one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance. Ben Roethlisberger, 38 year old NFL athlete. OK, anyway. I don't he uh, continued to Governor Wolf. I don't personally think any Pennsylvanian ought to take that chance. I certainly don't want to take that chance myself. I don't want to take a chance. So I'm going to impose my risk profile on everybody else. Isn't that uh, just a perfect commentary? Um, mm-hmm. According to uh, Governor Wolf's own Department of Health, most of the COVID-19 deaths in Pennsylvania have occurred among patients age 80 or older. The virus had killed exactly zero patients in Pennsylvania under the age of 30, and it claimed the lives of more than five times as many people over the age of 99 as under the age of 40. As for the risk here, it's not a health risk. It's a Tom Wolf regulatory risk that uh, the barbershop and the state faces. Wolf declined to say whether the barbershop would face any disciplinary action, a la Carl Menke in Owasso, Michigan. Uh, The uh, barber, however, issued a statement, and we're so glad he did, just like Carl Mankey issuing a statement. On behalf of Norman's Cutting Edge Barbershop, his attorney, Carlos Norman has been a community fixture and local business owner since 1993. Norman's Cutting Edge Barbershop has been closed for business since the governor's shutdown order. Presently remains closed in full compliance with law and state regulations. Mr. Norman and Mr. Roethlisberger are close personal friends, and Mr. Norman's use of his free time during closure to provide a haircut to his friend was a personal favor where no money was received or exchanged. In most homes across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the rest of America, we're relying on the selfless acts of friends and family members to help get us through the ongoing pandemic. We should all look within ourselves to celebrate and be thankful for the existence of family, community, and personal friends to lend a hand in each of our lives at this time rather than promote stories that divide us. You know, I kind of like the response, even though it's, uh, you know, the typical lawyerly one, because it sort of uh, responds to virtue shaming with virtue shaming, uh, which is, I suppose, the uh, eye for an eye response that Governor Wolf deserves. And frankly, it's much better. (laughs) It's a much better explanation than Ben Roethlisberger saying what uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said when she got her haircut after issuing the the shelter in place order. I mean, in Chicago, understand draconian, forget Pritzker and Wolf, perhaps the most draconian politician, the greatest, the, the, the person most committed to lockdown and bust is the mayor of Chicago. Eric Garcetti in LA is probably a close second de Blasio, maybe a close third. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, you know, why for me and not for thee when she got her haircut? I'm the face of the city. I'm the face of the city. That's not a pretty face, but uh, the picture in Chicago isn't very pretty either. But it's much better than Big Ben saying, I'm the face of Pittsburgh or any politician there. I'm the face of the state. I'm the face of the city. Yeah, that's the response. Now you know why regular people are recoiling at uh, the punishment that's being imposed by people who are not in the same boat. They're not even in the same storm frankly. I'm the face of the city. De Blasio issues his shutdown order, then goes to, you know, walk around the park because he's who he is, Werner Wilhelm. 
but uh, I go back again, just remarkable, remarkable, and sort of um, perfectly American that that uh, barbers and stylists are the Nathan Hales of the lockdown era. This is Dan Clark. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, anatomy of a hatchet job. This is what uh, Ron DeSantis was referencing in part when the Florida governor took out after the D.C. press corps legitimately for their misreporting as well as misprognosticating about Florida. There's a story that was picked up by dozens of media outlets in Florida nationally of the firing of Rebecca Jones, a State Department of Health employee, fired by the administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, She says she refused to manipulate data to support the governor's plan to reopen the state. The Tallahassee, uh, Tallahassee outlet, TallahasseeReports.com, went through the claims versus the truth. Again, we have to tell the story about Ron DeSantis because we predicted end times in Florida because uh, we don't like Ron DeSantis and thus we don't like what, what he does regardless of the merits of it. So he's doing something different than we're telling, uh, than we're celebrating with all the lockdown and bus governors. So we have to take him out and we'll uh, make up any story to do so. So the firing of Rebecca Jones, Rebecca Jones was the architect of Florida's COVID-19 dashboard wrong as the Tallahassee reports dot com says Jones was more like a drywall hanger of the dashboard rather than the architect. The dashboard was built on the same visual mapping tool that Johns Hopkins University made famous at the beginning of the, the crisis. In fact, Florida's tool looks extremely similar. That's because Johns Hopkins University is not the architect of the dashboard either. It's not built on any of Florida's many data servers, but using ready-made modules from a subscription service called ArcGIS. Her job, the woman who was fired, was to load data into those modules and decide how it appeared to visitors. That's it. She wasn't the architect. Uh, By the way, she has a doctorate, Dr. Rebecca Jones. She has a doctorate in geography. (laughs) She's not a medical professional. She's got no special skills in epidemiology or public health. Rebecca Jones was asked to manipulate data to support the governor's plan to reopen Florida. Wrong. She was actually asked to temporarily disable the ability to export data from the dashboard until it could be verified that the data matched other data sources. And she was fired because she refused to comply with orders to hide the truth about COVID-19. It's a conspiracy. The silencing uh, dissenters, right? Another whistleblower case. The truth, she was fired for insubordination that was repeated including her unilateral decisions to modify the department's COVID-19 dashboard without input or approval from the epidemiological team or her supervisors. There's a chain of command. And by the way, near the top would be the actual medical professionals who uh, can properly contextualize the data. So anatomy of a hatchet job, desperately seeking a way to try to tarnish the performance of Ron DeSantis in spite of, in spite of the facts and uh, in spite of those comparisons between, say, Florida and New York and the Midwestern states or Georgia even and New York and the Midwestern states that don't 
put New York and the other blue states and their blue state media uh, ops in the most positive light, do they? And it's not UV light either. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. I, I want to go back to this interview I did last night with Dr. Scott Atlas, who's uh, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford, who just reminded us of some basic things that seem to have been lost in this discussion, like what the purpose of the lockdowns was in the first place. Almost 99% of people that have the infection have either no symptoms at all or have a mild disease that doesn't require serious medical care. The other point that's counter to science, people who want to extend this, is that we know the fatality rate is far lower than what was originally used to necessitate the lockdown, maybe a tenth. But even worse than that, of their ignoring the data, is that the fatality rate is extremely low. In fact, if you look at the data without just summarizing a bottom line, actually look at it like a critical thinker, those who are under 60 have a fatality rate infection fatality rate that is less than or equal to seasonal flu. And so that was an argument against extending the lockdown. But what about uh, the argument against the lockdown, uh, the way it was perpetrated in the first place? Where did this come from? I've referenced this piece over the last couple of days. I just can't reference it enough. It is just astounding. I cannot believe that this is actually how we got to this policy choice that has gripped the entire world. And uh, this Jeffrey Tucker research and historical account uh, should be read by everyone who's interested at all in living in a free society. I don't know how else to describe it. The 2006 origins of the lockdown idea. And I'll let Jeffrey Tucker tell the story because he's the one who brought it to us. Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. So the lockdown and social distancing policies, the genesis of them. Ah, big topic. You know, I hadn't heard that term, social distancing, until I watched that movie Contagion in, in 2011. It seems like we're, we're almost trying to play out that movie in real time. You know, it seems like a foreshadowing fictional version of reality we're going through right now, including the you know, the whole theory that the way to deal with the virus is to run and hide, walk around in a space suit. And it really bugged me watching this thing because I thought, you know, that's a completely different theory from that which my mother's generation, my mother and college generation had. They were coming out of World War II. They had a very sophisticated view of natural immunities and exposures and the idea of stopping society or wrecking anything or banning gatherings or anything like that, much less staying away from friends and not letting your kids go on play dates. That would have been inconceivable to those people because they had a very sophisticated understanding of viruses. So what happened? Where was the lost knowledge? How is it possible that my mother understood very well viruses when I was growing up, but somehow we've got a whole generation that doesn't understand anything at all? 
But so I began to look into it. It turns out, basically with the turn of the millennium, we had a new generation of intellectuals that took over virus policy. They were not medics. They were not experienced epidemiologists. In fact, they were opposed passionately by the most experienced epidemiologists. People actually understood viruses, like, for example, Douglas Henderson, who eradicated smallpox. They're computer scientists, the main one in the U.S. Now, the U.K. has its own issues and things. In the U.S. case, his name was Robert Glass, and he was a, worked for Sandia Laboratories in Albuquerque, Mexico. And he took it over to his daughter, who was 14, who was working on a high school science fair project, mapping the way the, the human contact among her peers. You know, just kind of built in a couple of assumptions there. If they had a virus, how the other one would get the virus, and the other one would get the virus. But if you kept them apart, then the virus wouldn't spread. And he had this eureka moment and knocked out this paper based purely on computerized modeling and physics. I mean, that's his background. He has absolutely no medical background whatsoever. Banged out this paper calling for social distancing policies that when the virus comes along, we should all just hunker down, stay in our homes, cancel schools, large events, close malls, no consideration whatsoever given to economics, human rights, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, or even the reality of how viruses themselves behave. This is that they don't go away because you hide it. Basically, his theory of viruses is the boogeyman theory, you know? Anyway, that paper was so riveting and exciting. George Bush brought together a team of doctors and computer scientists and had them argue about what should be the policy of the future. He was very concerned about bioterrorism, that sort of thing. Well, the modelers and the geeks, basically the same people who created Pac-Man and so on, prevailed over the doctors because they had a more impressive presentation before the political class. And many aspects of the glass policies got written into the CCD policy, uh, C- CDC policy in 2007. And you can read that document online and see that it's a kind of a moderate version of lockdown that very quickly became an extreme version. As I say, all the epidemiologists were against it and wrote passionately against this and said, this is a pre-modern view. This is more akin to the policies they used in 1918. And we learned that that is not the right way to control virus. But they didn't prevent And the epidemiologists you refer to in doctors, Dr. D.A. Henderson and colleagues from Johns Hopkins, yeah. uh, in 2006, the mitigation measure of the, of the lockdown, as a mitigation measure, they write, should be eliminated from serious consideration should be eliminated from serious consideration, and yet 14 years later, here we are, and not only is it seriously considered, it's been the policy for the last two months. So that paper by Henderson and colleagues is prophetic. It says that through these methods of social distancing and closures and lockdowns, especially school closures, they're completely against them, or banning of mass events or shutting down anything, he said you can turn a manageable pandemic into a catastrophe. That was his word. And another thing about that paper, he said, if you do this, you will discredit public health officials and government forever. And so what they're essentially saying is uh, what a lot of people said at the outset, we should phase in and then phase out. Imagine that symmetry. Yeah. Uh, the, the lockdowns in this <coughs> is fascinating because, you know, the lockdowns in this country were promoted under the claim that we had to preserve hospital capacity. Since there's going to be mass deaths, you know, we're going to have millions and millions of people die. So our possibles we overwhelmed. So we have to flatten the curve, which just means prolonged pain. That's turned out not to be true. So here's the problem when you develop bad policy on bad theory. You don't know how to dig yourself out of it. Like everybody presumes that this mandatory closure is forced, and that if you get next to somebody that you run a risk of the COVID boogeyman is going to appear. 
once you start believing all this nonsense, it's hard to roll back, as you can tell. That's where we are as a country right now. And, yeah, I blame uh, bad theory and lockdown policies and the CDC and, 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 and the hysterical media and the fact that we, we, put, we put a bunch of computer scientists, politicians, uh, in charge of disease mitigation, but we should have left it to the medical professionals, as we did in 1969, as we did in 1967 and 58, as we did in 1941 and 52, and so on. Uh, you know, it's interesting you take a, a say about um, we, they don't know the way to get out. They don't know how to get out because they've uh, staked their reputations, the politicians, on this, and they can't figure a way out because a way out, the, you know, from talking to actual Medical professionals will there'll be more cases, but it's not about more cases. It's about preventing hospitalizations and deaths. So protecting the vulnerable, which should have been the approach at the outset, as Dr. Atlas and so many others, Dr. Bhattacharya at Stanford as well, have argued from the beginning. And that's exactly what Johan Gusecki, the former head of uh, the former state epidemiologist for Sweden, said from the yeah. beginning, you know, come to me a year from now and we'll see whose approach was the better approach. And, and just yeah. with respect to the CDC. So, you know, all of the things we didn't know that they didn't want to admit that they didn't know. And so let's just err on the side of martial law effectively. CDC, the study yesterday, the novel virus does not spread easily via contaminated surfaces, does not spread easily from touching surfaces or objects. After we spent uh, much of the last eight weeks talking about not only washing your hands, but, you know, having hazmat teams come in and clean your uh, house and office every single day. Oh, it's great. You know, for anybody under the age of 56, with, with healthy people under 56, this is scarcely a disease at all. And we, we know this now. We've, we've actually known this for a very long time. In fact, there's no excuse for anything we did. You, do you recall the very first of COVID-19 in this country that, that made the news? Remember what it was? It was the Seattle Nursing Home. Yeah, Washington right. State, right. right. Yeah, right. Yeah. If we had any brains out of civilization at all, we would have looked at that situation and said, huh. Maybe this is a vulnerable population. <laughs> Maybe we should focus our mitigation efforts on this demographic. Viruses all are different. 1968 targeted pregnant women. Can you imagine? 1957, a lot of children died. 116,000 uh, Americans was a population of only 200 million at the time. Uh, polio, 40, 40, 49 to 52, maimed young girls between the age of five and nine. I mean, give me a break. These were wicked diseases. This one. Uh, we know it, it targets people with very low life expectancy. We know this. We've known this for months now. But yet, uh, uh, I, and I thought truly, in, in early April, I started throwing out the demographic data. I thought, well, now that we know this, everybody's going to calm down and we all go back to normal. And nope. Didn't happen. Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're uh, pleased to be joined again by our friend Grady Means. He is a op-ed contributor to The Hill, thehill.com, Washington Times, San Francisco Chronicle. He served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and... Uh, his latest piece at the Hill is uh, particularly noteworthy. I, I had no idea. I guess I hadn't been paying close enough attention. Apparently, we have a new constitution in this country, 
and uh, among some of the founding principles of the new documents for New America, starting anew in 2020, is that you have the uh, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness so long as you are a member of the designated elite class. For more on this, Grady Means, thanks so much for being with being with us. Appreciate it. Sam, thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, boy, uh, uh, don't I feel silly not knowing that we had a new constitution. Um Please uh, let us know what's in this new constitution, since I'm not up to speed. Well, I don't think most people know it. Um, it's been subtle. It's changed uh, since 1964. Uh, the constitution has basically been uh, uh, dramatically overhauled. Um, uh, we certainly uh, 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 the rights of assembly, uh, rights of uh, speech. Um, you know, the checks and balances of the constitution have gotten way out of whack. Uh, certainly, we can see uh, with the governors, uh, the mayors, they've assumed uh, power, uh, forced lockdowns, and restricted protest. And so the balances uh, that we should have, uh, I mean, the way the governors have behaved, it's like Chernobyl all over again. Uh, they behaved in a very autocratic way and may have gotten the answer completely wrong, but they doubled down and enforced it anyway. And uh, that's very troubling. Um, uh, it's arguable that with a little bit of protest and a little bit of discussion, they might have actually gotten a better answer um, uh, where we actually would have saved more lives and uh, uh, we uh, uh, would have had a good back and forth discussion to get to, to get to the right place. And as this has moved forward, the tech industry has moved, moved in. And uh, now YouTube and Twitter have announced that you have no right to critique uh, the policies of governors or mayors. So. Uh, as I said, uh, we're, we're, we're moving into a new kind of state, a new kind of country that we hadn't seen before. And the scariest thing, of course, is Bill Gates uh, moving forward uh, with uh, contact tracing. Uh, we're under the guise of uh, worrying about health and worrying about who you've talked to and where you've been. They're expanding a capability to track every, every American, everywhere they go, everywhere they talk to, who they meet with, what they do. Uh, which uh, over time could provide a, a very scary situation in terms of uh, surveillance state overseeing everything we're doing. So, yeah, I think I'm worried about that. I think the Constitution has changed since 1964 uh, in major ways. Now, we should all be a little nervous about that. Now, but with respect to these changes, uh, as I understand it from um, some of those uh, in power, some of who, whom you uh, referenced, those changes may have happened on the margins. Maybe I don't agree with you, Grady, in terms of how far we've changed from the core principles. But to the extent that the changes have been made, they've been to the benefit of people that uh, don't have uh, the same financial resources, don't have the same power in America that uh, those who are wealthier and more connected have. So this has been changes that have been good because it has enhanced the protections and the and the rights of uh, people that uh, are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, they would argue. I think that's been turned on its head, though. This all started in the mid-1960s uh, uh, with the Civil Rights uh, Acts and the new new programs we had to bring millions of people out of poverty, tens of millions of people out of poverty. And those were really important, really good pieces of legislation to right the wrongs of two centuries and more, more against the African-Americans uh, in our country. And to try to begin to set things right, and we spent trillions of dollars trying to set things right. Unfortunately, during that legislation, uh, we embedded a few words uh, that were loose, like rights, uh, human rights, equality, fairness. They sound good, 
But what they did, I mean, there's one law that, that remains above all others in Washington. That's the law of unintended consequences. Mm. And by putting those words in, which are loose, loose legal words, you wind up uh, with identity politics. You wind up with hundreds, if not thousands, of different groups organizing and claiming they have a new set of uh, rights, a new set uh, of, of rights to certain kinds of equality and a new sets of fairness. And it becomes a free-for-all, which actually hurts the poor. The most clear example is that African Americans, women, uh, Hispanic Americans were making tremendous progress over the past two or three years uh, with the lowest unemployment rates in history. I mean, that's real hope and change uh, for big segments of our uh, population which have been disadvantaged. Uh, but we then decided to confer rights upon uh, uh, immigrants uh, who are here undocumented, who are actually here illegally. They broke laws to get here, uh, certainly for good reason, but nonetheless broke laws. And we conferred new rights on them, uh, rights to be here, uh, rights to drive, get a driver's license and identity papers, uh, 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 rights to um, uh, education uh, to be paid for, Medicare, Medicaid to be paid for. And by doing that, the group we hurt, it, hurt was the poor. Uh, we hurt African-Americans. Uh, we hurt women. We hurt Hispanics, all of whom got displaced in the labor market, especially during the COVID crisis. During the COVID crisis, the lockdowns, uh, which uh, many of which are constitutionally debatable, uh, and from, a, from, a, from a, a reasonable perspective, maybe not the best policies we could have had, uh, the people who are really going to get hurt are the people at the lower end of the scale, uh, as and, well as people who have just entered the markets. And, and that's uh, the problem. Yeah, and, and the people at the lower end and the scale, too, uh, that um, may tend to be more uh, religiously oriented than people at the upper end of the scale. They're seeing their rights curtailed in other ways during this as well, too, starting with their religious liberty rights. They are. I mean, the, the, the people uh, need to understand that uh, among the African-American community, the Hispanic community, women, uh, these are folks with uh, strong traditional values uh, and uh, what, among which is religion. And uh, to basically go after them, to open Walmart to close churches, uh, is, is, is an extremely uh, clumsy authoritarian notion, uh, which should be publicly debated. But unfortunately, our tech community shut down debate. If you disagree with the government, you cannot talk. YouTube and Twitter have both said they're taking down any sort of um, uh, protests uh, that disagree with the stated policies of uh, state and local government. That's very scary. That's a surveillance state moving into place. And we should be nervous about that. He is great. He means he's a contributor to The Hill, The Washington Times and San Francisco Chronicle. Served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you. Take care. Take care. Rolling uh, right from our discussion with Grady Means to No Safe Spaces, which you can now watch on demand at nosafespaces.com. As uh, Grady Means was just talking about uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, Twitter regulating content. Well, that's the subject of the documentary put together by Dennis Prager, our friend and colleague, uh, Adam Carolla, that focuses on the assault on free speech in America that's happening in uh, on social media platforms, as we were just discussing, as well as in Hollywood and on college campuses, of course. No Safe Space is the number one political documentary of 2019 that uh, includes perspectives from across the political spectrum who share a common belief in free minds and free speech in a free America. 
for my listeners, for Dan Prof listeners, for a limited time, use the discount code SAVE25. You get 25% off No Safe Spaces, which you can live stream at nosafespaces.com. Again, 25% off by using SAVE25 to watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Let's update some science. CDC now saying that coronavirus does not spread easily via contaminated surfaces. So um, the last eight weeks we've uh, spent repeating as one of the dutiful phrases that is uh, required stating for every politician, wash your hands, uh, social distance, uh, make sure you routinely clean surfaces that you come into regular contact with. Well, you can eliminate that last one. Does not easily spread via contaminated surfaces. Also, a, a study out of uh, the Center for Virology and Vaccine Research at Harvard's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston finds that uh, monkeys, two studies of monkeys, offer some of the first scientific evidence that surviving COVID-19 may result in immunity from reinfection, a positive sign for the vaccines under development. Is that particularly newsworthy? I mean, it's great to... uh, confirm what we suspect to be true and always continue to advance the research for that confirmation, testing hypotheses and all that. But was this very much in doubt? Actually, it was because of the criticism of antibody testing that uh, uh, microbiologist Andrew Bogan and uh, a doctor from the Geffen School of Medicine, the UCLA, opined about in the Wall Street Journal that we talked about yesterday on this program with Dr. Scott Atlas, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, in which he said this regarding uh, regarding, uh, uh, antibodies and the known science. Antibodies are protective, and those antibodies are the underlying excitement about why transfusing antibodies from healed people into those who might get sick is protective. That's one sense of excitement here about a drug. Right. And so the this is sort of immunology 101 that we've known for generations. And yet this was uh, uh, the topic of a bit of a fight, it seems. It brings me to Matt Ridley's uh, piece from a few days ago, The Spectator. Uh, we know everything and nothing about COVID. Ignorance is the natural state of things. Every new disease is different. Its epidemiology becomes clear only gradually and in retrospect. Clearly. Is COVID-19 transmitted mainly by breath or by touching? Do children pass it on without getting sick? Why is it so much worse in Britain than Japan? Why are obese people especially at risk? How many people have had it? Are ventilators useless after all? Why is it not exploding in Indian Africa? Will there be a second wave? We do not begin to have answers to these questions. Or He's right. We're, some of the answers to some of those questions is only starting to take form now. Some of the answers we thought we had have turned out to be wrong, like on the matter of surfaces and transmission. But that you wouldn't know that to listen to the politicians and their pronouncements about uh, locking down, as uh, the same Matthew Ridley observed, a 17th century uh, faced with a 17th century plague. We fall back to 17th century response of quarantine and closure for more on all of this. We're pleased to be joined by 
contributor to the Wall Street Journals, uh, the Spectator and London Times, author of The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and his recently released book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt Ridley joins us. Matt, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. How do you react to uh, some of the new information out in the last 24 hours about things we knew that we didn't know and things we knew that we already knew? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm afraid this is the pattern of things. We're going to keep finding things that we know and don't know. I mean, many weeks ago, uh, just from friends, I was aware of the fact that uh, uh, lack of losing your sense of smell and taste was a pretty good definition of catching this, that that you'd caught this virus. Uh, And yet uh, official advice has only really just caught up with that. So I think the the authorities have been slow to pick up on certain things. It looks like uh, vitamin D deficiency is a a risk factor for suffering badly with this disease. Uh, It looks like children are not passing it on hardly at all. It looks like the common cold coronaviruses, of which there are four, Uh, different types that circulate regularly and don't cause severe disease may give us partial immunity to this virus. And that might be why the epidemic is dying away uh, relatively quickly in countries that haven't done the lockdown. So we're learning all the time and we shouldn't be too critical of uh, having to change our minds, uh, whether as authorities or medical uh, authorities or whatever. Uh, Yeah. And and, uh, when we come back, I just want to pick it up right there. Why the resistance to change minds to publicly start out with some humility about what we don't know and then bring people along as we learn things about this and and what makes sense and what doesn't in terms of a response. It seems like the lack of humility leads to a lack of controlling expectations, leads to people locking in or, as General Honoré famously said about uh, the Katrina response, being stuck on stupid. More with Matt Ridley, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, author of the recently released How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Matt Ridley, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, spectator of London Times, author of The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and his recently released book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. And Matt, before the break, we were talking about, uh, and I was suggesting that the lack of humility from policymakers, politicians, some even scientists, public health professionals, wealthy people that fund scientists and public health professionals like Melinda Gates, the lack of humility means the lack of controlling expectations, which induces fear, which leads to draconian policies. And even when those policies are shown to be ineffectual or counterproductive, people get locked in to say the lockdown because they've committed so much capital to it, they can't seem to walk it back. Yeah, well, that's a real problem in the modern age. A politician tends to have to say something pretty certain and definitive, and the media gives him hell if he doesn't, and then he's stuck, hoist on his own petard and can't retreat from from what he's said. But there's another problem too, which is that people are thoroughly, easily scared into pessimism about things, whether it's about climate change or population explosion or whatever. You know, over the years, we're constantly being 
inundated with scary stories and we tend to believe them much more readily than we believe reassuring stories. You know, such and such a food is bad for you. You never notice the counter story saying, no, it's not bad for you. And we're, find, we're seeing this in real time at the moment. Scaring people into a lockdown was easy, actually. People wanted to believe that this was a real problem and that it was time we took drastic action and gave up all our work and went home and stayed there. Unscaring them, getting them out of the lockdown, changing their mind, saying, no, it's safe to return to work, isn't so easy. And funnily enough, that was one of the reasons the Swedes refused to do it, is because uh, they knew that if they got people forced into lockdown by the government, then people would be very hard to coax back out to work. And the re- other countries are now seeing that at the moment. Right. Uh, uh, Switzerland reopens its restaurants, but nobody shows up, not because they can't, but because they won't. I mean, and that's even uh, one of the countries that would arguably be considered more rational than most in terms of the response. Yeah, and here in the UK, we've had lovely spring weather for the last couple of months, and people have gone outside and sat down in parks to sunbathe, and the police has moved them on and said, no, 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 you can't sit in a park and sunbathe. Haven't you read the advice? You've got to be at home. This is crazy, because we know that sunlight is a really good disinfectant of viruses. They don't like UV light. Moreover, we know that UV light boosts your vitamin D levels, and that that is protective in itself. The difference between outdoor and indoor transmission of this virus is something that should have been made much clearer by politicians at an earlier stage, uh, I feel. There's nothing wrong with people going outside uh, and coming within a couple of meters of each other if necessary. Let's be flexible about this. We just need to reduce the rate at which we cough directly into each other's faces because that's where it's coming from. And there are lots of ways of doing that. And it seems to me, too, it's it's not just fear-inducing, it's also shame-inducing, right? That's part of it as well, which is not only is what you're doing dangerous, if you continue to do it, you're a bad person. I mean, you may not be afraid for yourself, but you're a bad person because other people are afraid, and so you need to hew the line. I think shame-inducing, we've seen an awful lot of that. We've seen people um, telling people off uh, for... People going around to speak to their elderly parents without going near them, you know, and they've been told, you shouldn't have done that. You've got to stay at home. It's going to be really hard to put the world back together again. A lot of people are being paid to stay at home. This lockdown has done huge economic damage, but it's also done huge health damage to people, people not going to hospitals for cancer and people having suffering mental problems at home. So it's going to be a very interesting episode in human history. But my reading of it is that although I thought this really is a very serious problem at the start, and it is a serious pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, we did need to take pretty drastic action. Uh, We have, on the whole, overreacted. A lot of the voluntary measures were more important than the compulsory ones. And we now face a bigger problem getting the world back to work than we face of dealing with the pandemic. And uh, you had uh, the Saturday essay in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend uh, about innovation, which is the topic of your latest book, How Innovation Works. And you uh, make the point that it can't be forced. You can't force innovation on a particular timeline necessarily, but you can quash it if you erect enough hurdles. And, And that's the real concern that you have going forward. Yes, I fear that we're living in a period of rather sluggish innovation. Uh, In some areas, like digital, we're seeing a lot of innovation. But in a lot of other areas, we're not. And this is rather well illustrated by the pandemic, because we're not seeing enough innovation in vaccination development to help us get ready for the next pandemic, for example. It would have been great if we'd had faster progress on vaccine in the last 20 or 30 years. So innovation is 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 a curious phenomenon. It happens 
very rapidly in some places and sometimes, and then it kind of slows down. I mean, my grandparents saw incredible changes in transportation in their lifetime, born before the motor car and the airplane and died with men on the moon and supersonic planes in the air and, and space travel. I have had the opposite experience. I've had seen very little change in transport in my lifetime, uh, but I've seen a lot of changes in computers and communication in my lifetime. So I don't think we're going to, we know what's coming next uh, necessarily. There comes a point when certain things are ripe. You can't help but invent the search engine once you've invented the internet, for example. So there's an inevitability about that. And right now, uh, we need operation in order to have innovation. That's operation of all the sectors that are not currently operating because we understand how interconnected they all are. As, as, uh, as uh, Mike, I think it was Mike Rowe observed, Dirty Jobs, it says that, you know, basically, like, you, you know, the economy is like a blanket. You start pulling on one end and it bunches up on the other, the interconnectedness of all of this. Yeah, I think that, that, that's certainly true. Innovation is very much a collective process. It comes about through exchange of ideas among different people. It's not a case of clever people going off and sitting in an ivory tower and having bright breakthroughs. Uh, It really is a a tinkering, gradual, incremental process that involves people uh, connecting uh, all across the world. So it's vital that we keep the world connected after this. Of course, we will see innovation as a result of this pandemic. I mean, we're all getting used to remote working of various kinds. Mm -hmm. We're all going to find different ways of doing things without having to jump on airplanes and things like that. That might result in in good outcomes. So there will be a burst of innovation as a result of this. But I think it's incumbent on governments to remember that innovation is where prosperity comes from. And if they want prosperity back after this pandemic, then they're going to have to think about their policies for encouraging innovation, getting out there with incentives and getting the blockages out of the way. An awful lot of regulations have taken far too long to approve new medical devices, for example. Uh, And we've learned during this pandemic that we don't need such long uh, licensing times for things like that. He is Matt Ridley, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, spectator and London Times, author of The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and his uh, recently released book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is a fun name game story. Uh, unlike the less fun, although cynically fun, name game stories I'm used to being a, a resident of Chicago, hailing from Cook County, Illinois, at least where I was born, grew up in the suburbs. But none, nonetheless, I digress. This comes to us from Fargo, North Dakota, and it has all the makings of a Coen Brothers script. Ben M. Hansen is a Democrat candidate running to become the uh, North Dakota state representative in District 46. And Ben W. Hansen is a Democrat candidate running to become a North Dakota state representative in District 46, too. It's Ben M. versus Ben W. Hansen, both spelled the same, S-O-N. And uh, unlike in uh, Cook County in Chicago, where we're used to uh, politicians playing the name game to uh, rig the ballot in their favor. So, for example, uh, uh, I remember Jesse Jackson Jr. when he was a congressman, somebody named Jesse Jackson 
try to change, well, uh, tried to run against him, changing his name to Jesse Jackson to run against him. For Cook County Circuit Court judge, where you have uh, people used to voting for Irish surnames, in 2018, the most recently concluded the general election cycle, you had a candidate for Cook County Circuit Court judge named Philip Spiewak, who in advance of his run for Cook County judge, changed his name to Shannon O'Malley. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, he lost. He was not rewarded for that. But nonetheless, I get uh, getting back to North Dakota, where there's no skullduggery afoot. These are actual. Uh, these are the actual names and the names that have been used from their birth to present. Uh, they're uh, the only differentiation being the middle initials. Both graduated from uh, the same. Uh, School, the same schools, apparently. Uh, The uh, older Ben is the first to jump on the Ben bandwagon. um, But the younger Ben was the first to get into local politics. Uh, The first time I met Ben, said one Ben to the other, probably five years ago, four years ago, I walked in to grab a lunch. I asked, are you Ben Hansen? Ben Ben M. Hansen described as he went over to introduce to to be uh, introduced to Ben W. Hansen at a restaurant in downtown Fargo. Name recognition is a huge, huge battle, Ben M. Hansen said. So right off the bat, we're kind of uh, one in the same, same team. So we'll see how that works out. It's just kind of, that's a cute story. You get cute stories about politics in North Dakota. You get terribly depressing stories of people trying to game the system in places like Chicago. Um, and I wonder why the systems of governance and the quality of governance is so much different uh, as state by state. Ah, yes, the 50 laboratories. Uh, Before I let you go, let me remind you again to check out Patterns of Evidence, the series I've been talking about that looks at uh, the uh, uh, stories in the Bible like Exodus and uh, answers the question of whether they really happened as recorded. Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, uh, you can watch right now at PatternsofEvidence.com. It also includes two other movies in the series, The Moses Controversy and The Red Sea Miracle. Again, that's Patterns of Evidence at PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another installment of The Dan Prof Show. Please round out your week tomorrow by doing so again. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.